0: This week, I want to uh, continue the um, exploration of what we've been calling ethical practice that uh, I started in uh, June, I think, and this will be the uh, the third of the investigations of the meaning of uh, ethical practice that we'll be that we'll be conducting. Ethical practice is particularly important because it's one of the main ways that we bring our practice into our daily lives and have uh, ways to connect the inner practice with our uh, with our life, our actions, our interactions. Is there some, some way I could help? Just ignore me. What's that? Just ignore me. Okay, in the, in the um, general training that we have, there, there are these three areas, and they're all interrelated, which is another very important uh, point, that the three areas are typically understood as first the area of ethics and of uh, working with our uh, actions and behavior in the world. Uh, The second area is meditation connected with developing mindfulness, concentration, and so forth. And the uh, third area is the development of wisdom. And these are all interrelated. These collectively define what's called the Noble Eightfold Path. And the key here is that they're all interrelated, so when we, work to develop uh, ethical living, it's not just understood as following some rules or following some external behavioral guidelines, but intimately related with how we uh, are aware, how we are mindful of our motivations. If I notice myself going against an ethical guideline, I can start investigating what's going on. You know, what's my motivation? What's my thinking? You know, what's what's there in my being, and so very crucial starting point is that all these are very closely interrelated: uh, mindfulness, loving kindness, wisdom practice, ethics, and um, one of the shortcomings of a number of the uh, ways that mindfulness is being brought into the world now, a lot of which are beneficial, is that it's sometimes disconnected from the ethical dimension. Mindfulness is just understood as a purely inner looking. But in the, certainly in the original context in Asia, in the Buddhist context, there is this deep interrelation among the different, uh, the different areas of training. All with the intention of awakening. With the intention of gaining this deep freedom and self-knowledge. This is from the uh, Dhammapada, about the quality of uh, freedom or liberation, which is really the aim. All the ethical practice is part of this uh, coordinated training and practice to, to awaken. Those who fully cultivate, it's said in the Dhammapada, this is the, this is the historical Buddha, those who fully cultivate the factors of awakening, give up grasping, enjoy non-clinging, are luminous and completely liberated in this life. Wouldn't you like to be luminous and completely liberated in this life? (laughs) That's the direction. And all, but all of these uh, are involved. So the training is understood as involving all the parts of our lives, which is an important quality. It's not just meditation. We have this misunderstanding sometimes. Oh, this is just about being quiet and meditating. And then if I meditate, half an hour a day, that'll do it. Anyone have that thought ever? <laughs> About it, but the, it's really a comprehensive training, and one of the powers of uh, ethical training is that there are ways to bring uh, this intention into the uh, various normal, ordinary interactions of our lives. We, we've looked at how there are traditionally five uh, ethical guidelines for uh, lay people. Monastics, monks and nuns, have over 200 guidelines, a lot of which are just very specific, particular, like don't handle money, you know, the kind of beds one should sleep on, that sort of thing. And they're very, uh, they're very specific. The ones that are generally for lay people are variants of non-harming, Really carrying this quality of bringing care and love, positive end, on, on, in pointing to the negative, to refrain from and look to where one's harming either of oneself or of others. And the precepts are first, not to harm in the, in the form of taking life, not to take that which is not given, care with sexuality, care with substances which shift consciousness, and uh, skillful speech. Those are the, fi- the five areas of, of ethical training. And the, again, the um, context of the ethical precepts being part of a larger training points to the way that they're not simply external rules from an authority that we're supposed to follow. And if we don't follow, thunder will come from the sky, (laughs) we'll be struck by lightning, or at least be slapped on the wrist, (laughs) you know. It's It's not really about that. These are more training guidelines that we work with and we see where we fall short as it were. We look, we use them for investigation. I mentioned in the previous two sessions that I like to conceptualize ethical practice as, being, as having these three components. The first is what we could call attention to our more outer behavior. We use an ethical precept like non-harming to look, uh, what am I doing? Was that harmful? What was my motivation? That action, Did it, was that harmful to myself? We, we really use the guidelines to take an inventory of how we act in the world, how we act in relation to ourselves. And I call that a more outer dimension of ethical practice. There's also more inner dimension where we use the ethical precepts to see what's my motivation, what's going on, what's my thinking, what's my under, understanding. We also, in that context, develop the positive quality because the ethical guidelines are typically framed negatively. But the understanding is very much that they're connected with development of positive qualities, that non-harming... Cultivated goes hand in hand with developing care, concern for all beings, increasingly. Not taking that which is not given is often uh, connected with the positive qualities of generosity, sometimes renunciation, when we notice there is grasping or greed and so forth. And um, being careful with sexuality and substances which have consciousness can also about care for others. Sometimes renunciation. Sometimes looking into habits and so forth. So there, there are a lot of positive qualities that are that are developed uh, as well. And then the the third area that I like to point to is that there's a social dimension to these ethical precepts. That's sometimes more subtle. And we've looked at that in the last two sessions when we've looked at the first and the second precept. That that. Uh, both in some of the ways that the Buddha framed the precepts originally, but probably more explicitly in the way that a number of people uh, have framed the ethical precepts in the last 50 or 60 years. Uh, People like uh, the Vietnamese teacher Thich Nhat Hanh, who says, uh, do not kill, but he also says, do not let others kill. Act to prevent killing. Know, act to prevent war and so forth, and extends that in his own formulation, the precepts, he extends all of the precepts to a social dimension. So it's not just not to not steal personally, but how do we relate to economic systems where there may be forms of stealing or taking of resources from one country or one part of the world, the country and so forth. And so that third area is sometimes tricky, but that's also an area of attention. It's also very much there if we look to other traditions. We look to Christian or Jewish or Muslim or Hindu uh, or even indigenous traditions. There's typically a sense that ethics is something that's about more than our personal face-to-face behavior. It goes also into the community, also into how we relate to suffering in the world and how we relate to uh, creating a more just, a better world, and so forth. So that's the third area. So uh, in the first two sessions we've had, we've looked at the first and second precept, the first precept that about uh, non-harming or more generally uh, not killing. And again, this is a really a way to um, uh, understand the general spirit of all of the ethical precepts, they're really about being, uh, a being who increasingly cannot harm—that it—it's almost more in one's being. There, there, there are lines in some of the texts where it says, as one matures in one's practice, that one could harm another would be like the right hand harming the left arm, mm-hmm. left arm, the right hand harming the left hand. That it would be, in a sense, unthinkable. Certainly, to do it consciously, you know, in some of the ethical guidelines also point towards seeing when we're more habitual, when we do things either unconsciously or sometimes non-intentionally. We can, uh, as we know, sometimes do things which are unskillful that we're not aware of. And so we don't so much uh, judge and blame ourselves for that, but we try to make everything learning. So again, the spirit of all this is not uh, having the ethical precepts be above our heads like a sword waiting for our misstep, you know, it's not like that. It's more, everything's in the context of learning. This is all in the context of learning, of training. We notice things and we try to learn from them. We move on. Um, And so the first precept, uh, non-harming, very crucial that one tries to take this both in relation to human beings but also in relation to other other uh, sentient beings, and develop uh, care towards, towards other beings. And so we, in our practice, looked at this in terms of having work with non-harming be an outer guideline, also an inner guideline. What, what, when, when I notice any quality of harming, whether intentionally or unintentionally occurring, what's going on inside? What's in my motivation? And linked with that, one could practice more metta, loving kindness, compassion. A lot of these inner practices would be part of ethical practice. Again, so there's an extension probably from what most of us may have learned growing up about ethics. You know, ethics, you know, is often seen as this external, you know, like in Jewish and Christian traditions, often external commandments try to live by them. And again, maybe I think in the depths of those traditions that there's more than that. But we often learned it that way. But here it's really uh, about cultivating in the context of the first precept, non-harming, a caring heart, and having that grow and develop so that one uh, is increasingly this center of care wherever one is in one's life, at least at one's best. And then we looked at the second precept, not taking that which is not given, which uh, traditionally uh, was often linked with even a certain, uh, for monks and nuns, a certain renunciation of uh, having property. And anyone who's been in uh, Thailand or Burma knows that they, the, their guidelines actually have them not even able to uh, keep food overnight. Yeah the refrigerator industry in thailand
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> does not have many customers from the monasteries because <laughs> they actually go out and get their food every day and it's linked with a certain quality of simple living and you know we could we, again this is a, another way we could interpret not taking that which is not given and last time i extended that to some ways that also apply to the social dimension you know, and thinking of uh, future generations. You know, in this very challenging ethical issue of, you know, are we using up resources? Are we affecting the climate in ways that will impact future generations? The answer is obviously yes. And would, would this uh, second precept also guide us to, if we really take it um, earnestly and fully, would it guide us also to, uh, act for future generations you know, as we have in the ethical understandings of many cultures remember the indigenous understanding of having actions reflect the, the interests of the seventh generation remember that teaching that's really and it could be seen in part as an expression of the second precept and today and I think next time I want to look at Surprise speech practice, or <laughs> mindful, mindful speech. What we called in our retreat that we just finished last week, mindful communication. And this is a this is a great area. Um, and my experience is that among the ethical precepts, following the precept on skillful speech, on wise speech, may be may have the most impact on our daily lives. That when we really look to. Uh, working with skillful speech, it's a big one, right? Particularly because we are talking so much. That we, u- we, use, uh, we use speech so much. And it's, uh, I find that when we work in a full way with the guideline to speak wisely, to have uh, what's called in the tradition right speech, or we could say developed or cultivated or mature. Uh, speech and communication, uh, it it can enter into our awareness a good part of the day. If we really want to keep having that intention to uh, speak wisely and skillfully, and it's a huge it's a huge area. And you know, I'm I'm inspired because I just worked <coughs> with a uh, a group of about uh, close to fifty people for a week in a non-residential retreat, te- working with mindful communication along with my co-teacher. Or and so forth. So I'm I'm inspired and energized and uh, in this area. And it, w- it was fun to do a non-residential retreat because everyone went home. We 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 had the retreat nine to five every day, which had to also had the benefit of keeping it low cost. And people then went home after five, and tried things out, <laughs> you know, and saw how it would be with their to, you know, people in their lives that they went to and, you know, and then we would report back at nine the next morning, you know, how'd it go, (laughs) you know, and it's, it's this area that's incredibly alive that, uh, uh, you know, speech is so important and so, uh, so um, present in our lives Uh, and we know how much uh, skillful speech or wise speech or heartfelt speech can, can be a benefit you know, when I'm how think of how uh, significant someone might be when I'm in distress and someone um, is even just listening because skillful listening is part of skillful speech someone who is a careful listener, a good listener an empathic listener someone who is very present you know uh, it can have a huge impact when I'm in distress someone who is Skillful, empathic, open with speech uh, when there's conflict or difficulty. Incredible resource, right? The world needs these people deeply. People who can be skillful with speech, with difficulties. It was one, one of the, uh, I would say, fun areas of our retreat. We spent the last, uh, parts of uh, the last three days applying what we had learned to difficult situations. Conflicts. we had people role-play, <laughs> you know, people got to say, you be my difficult person, here, here's what you do, you just have this look in your eye and just <laughs> have that look in your eye and give me that, give me this line that typically triggers me and well, I'll try out my new tools, you know, and w- it was a lot of fun, you know, and that's part of, so there can be, I, I find a certain amount of excitement, there can be excitement about dealing with difficulties, right, ra- you know, rather than saying, oh no, another difficulty, Anyone, anyone sometimes have that view? Oh, a difficult conversation. Yuck. Anyone ever have that sense? Anyone ever not have that sense? <laughs> right, and so uh, when when speech becomes practice, we can actually have interest in what's difficult. Maybe not in what's difficult in the sense on, on my scale of 10, 0 to 10, not maybe in the 9s and 10s, but maybe in the 5s and 6s on the scale of 10. Oh, Wow, I can try out, my, try out my developing capacities, right? So it can be, can be really exciting, really helpful. You know, again, the world deeply needs people who are skilled in communication when there are difficulties, when there are conflicts, you know, when there are wars. You know? And it's, it's, um, uh, you know, the other side of this is that we see, you know, again, very much in the world, but we probably see at times in our lives... Unskillful speech. We know how when we are reactive, unskillful speech may come out of us just when we react, right? And things can happen very quickly. One person says something, it triggers this, out comes something. And uh, when we practice more fully, maybe we catch some of those. We certainly practice in other ways. You know, there is... uh, one of my favorite illustrations of this is, is a cartoon that I sometimes talk about from The New Yorker where it shows a woman sitting on a um, couch uh, talking to a man who's standing up who is a seems to be a detective. And behind the couch is a what seems to be a police officer. Also behind the couch are what seem to be two legs on the floor with the feet sticking up in the air. And uh, uh, the woman says to the uh, detective, I misspoke. He misheard. Shots rang out. <laughs> Anyone ever experienced that? <laughs> right. yeah. 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 And so things happen very quickly. And the, uh, you know, and, and unskillful speech, speech that's very reactive, can um, lead to a lot of suffering, can... Make relationships difficult can end relation lead to the ending of relationships to conflicts to even to uh, even to wars. Twenty five hundred years ago, Socrates, you know, the great Greek philosopher, the you know, inspiration for Plato, said the misuse of language induces evil in the soul. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, very, very, uh, very, very crucial very, very crucial area. Um, in the teachings on skillful speech that uh, uh, I and my, my colleague Warren Sofer have assembled that we offer in this retreat, there, there are three broad areas and we're, we're going to work with one of them today. The, th- the three broad areas that we work with in speech, uh, at least as foundational capacities, are first working with the traditional ethical guidelines that come from the Buddha teachings on right speech or mature speech. Uh, Secondly, there's a whole area that we call relational awareness practice, which is a way of developing mindfulness and a quality of presence, connecting um, speech with maintaining both outer awareness and inner awareness. These are are not easy capacities to develop, but there's a way that one can develop mindfulness and awareness in the midst of speech. That's the second broad area. And then third area that we work with in the retreat is we bring in the contemporary discipline of nonviolent communication, which probably some of you have studied. How many of you have studied that? Some. Yeah, it's a very interesting area. We bring that in under the uh, general framework of uh, um, training in mindfulness, empathy, and community, and community connection. And so, and then we... On the basis of those three areas, then we take, give people further training in working with uh, difficult situations, conflicts, things that, that, things that come up. So I think I'm going to uh, work today uh, go into the first area, and then I think next, next time I'm going to do some further work. I'll give some suggestions for speech practice for the um, next week, if you... If you want to choose to um, uh, have clear intentions to practice skillful speech in the next week, or you can do the alternative,
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> which is no, I have I have a big fight coming up. I don't want to practice <laughs> skillful speech in the next week. <laughs> um, so, okay. So a little bit on these ethical guidelines, and um, in and. One of the uh, passages, which uh, expresses this, is in the handout Um, and this uh, first passage by the Buddha is one of the places where these ethical guidelines are given. Here it says, abandoning false speech one abstains from false speech, one speaks truth, adheres to truth, is trustworthy and reliable, is one who is no deceiver of the world, abandoning malicious speech. When abstains from malicious speech, one does not repeat elsewhere what one has heard here in order to divide uh, these those people from these people. Nor does one repeat to these people what one has heard elsewhere in order to divide these people from those people. <laughs> Thus one is someone who reunites those who are divided, a promoter of friendships, who enjoys concord, rejoices in concord, delights in concord, a speaker of words that promote concord. Beautiful. Are you inspired hearing that? You know, this is, this is like... Can you use speech so that you're this force for goodwill, connection, and conflict transformation in the world? Right? And th- those are the first two criteria, which I would generally call being truthful and being helpful. And then he goes on, abandoning harsh speech, one abstains from harsh speech, one speaks such words as are gentle, pleasing to the ear, and lovable, as go to the heart, or courteous, desired by many, and agreeable to many. Abandoning gossip, one abstains from gossip. One speaks uh, at the right time. One speaks what is fact. Speaks on what is good. Speaks on the dhamma and the discipline. At the right time, one speaks such words as are worth recording. Okay, so we were doing that. Taking care of that. Worth recording. <laughs> Reasonable, moderate, and beneficial. And so I've tended to reconstruct those. And mm-hmm. this is familiar because we've come back to skillful speech here. About every... About every two to four years, I come back and teach someone speech here. So some of this may be familiar. That I've reconstructed this as connected with four guidelines. Being truthful, being helpful, uh, coming out of a kind heart, which can coexist with uh, being firm. And th- it's not about being nicey-nice, but it's coming out of the heart, which is difficult when situations are conflictual. And then lastly... Um, Certain appropriateness, especially the the guideline is there in terms of timing. What's important about these guidelines is that all four are necessary. They all have to be there. We can be truthful without being helpful or kind. We sometimes call that dumping or, you know, sort of acting out. I can be truthful and use that as a weapon, right? And so all four of them have to be there. I can be truthful, helpful, come out of a kind heart and have bad timing and everything's a mess. Mm -hmm. And so all four have to be there. So let me say a little bit about the four and then about how to practice. And one of the the great tools, maybe even before going into the guidelines, one of the great tools that we find in speech practice is the capacity to pause in the middle of speech and just ask, what am I doing? So these guidelines are going to go well together with actually setting intentions, maybe before a difficult conversation. Say, uh, let me come here and be truthful and helpful. Or maybe sometimes what I do to, uh, when I want to have a very condensed guidance for um, speech practice, I say, let me be truthful and come from the heart. And let me do that. And, And so working with intentions is very crucial. You can go to a meeting and work with these guidelines. I often have the guidelines on sheets of paper in front of me at meetings. You can, before a difficult conversation, you can write the guidelines on your hand and look at them in the midst of the interaction. People do that sometimes, right? Because we need reminders, right? So the first guideline is about being, is about being truthful. And this is uh, partly to let us look at where there might be, uh, exaggerations uh, or being simply untruthful, uh, but they, they also can be, like in the example of exaggerations, they can also let us look, where do I not tell the full truth? Where am I omitting something? Where are there half-truths? Where am I exaggerating? Where am I saying something for self-image? Sort of this is the so-called gray area. And a lot of our speech practice is having the motivation to look at that and to sometimes if we notice that happening ask what's there this is where the guidelines will go hand in hand with mindfulness I notice myself going against a guideline and I ask myself what's going on what's happening why am I not quite telling the truth do I want to impress this person is there something I'm not quite comfortable with so these are used as tools for uh, self-knowledge, for investigation, you know. You know, I, I like to tell the story of uh, being a teenager and always exaggerating about my shoe size. Because you know, as a teenager, I thought my, uh, my mom is here, she can tell me what, whether, what her view on this is. But um, uh, when I was a teenager, I thought that my feet were too big and my ears were too big, and my neck was too long. Probably, I thought the rest of my body was okay. <laughs> and I think from talking with a lot of people, um, uh, being a teenager is a hard time. Right? And we—how many people remember thinking that some aspect of your body was definitely mismanufactured? <laughs> yeah, people can relate to that, you know. Jack Cornfield often jokes that. Um, the primary reason to uh, gain liberation and not be reborn again, according to the old Buddhist cosmology, is to avoid being a teenager again.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, and so I could notice, you know, I could, and I noticed there's even occasionally now, there's a little bit of a residue. People, You know, I don't know, kids, teenagers, for whatever reason, they asked all the time what, Size shoe you wear, and that hasn't happened to me really for like 30 years. <laughs> but it, it's I still notice a little bit of a residue, you know, with those because it was you know it was strong conditioning as a teenager. It's the the neural pathways are still more or less there in some cubby hole of the brain, right? You know, and that's true for us. You know, we may have our places. So we want to look. We want to look in our our minds as to what was you know when when there is a lack of, of truthfulness. And we, we can see this. And this is also where we can bring the precept. Again, there, there's this simple way of following a precept just on the external level. When we look to it also as an inner practice and as a social practice, the potential for deepening is greater. Right? And so on the social dimension, I can start to look, is there truthfulness in my r- relationship, in this relationship? Is there truthfulness in my relationships? Is there truthfulness in my work environment? Is there truthfulness in my community? Right? and We can do this with all of the ethical precepts, all of the speech precepts. We can ask that. That starts to make it a little more challenging. Are there problems of skillful speech in my community, in my workplace? Are there ways that I could help with that? You know, I found for myself, for example, uh, um, in one work environment, when I was connected with uh, I was connected with a graduate school in San Francisco for a number of years, and there were communication issues. People would often get at each other on emails. Anyone experienced that in your work environment or in general? And it was an issue, and and uh, we did what many groups do, uh, especially long-standing groups do when there's a problem. We formed a committee. And there was a communication committee, which luckily communicated pretty well with each other, <laughs> members of the committee. And I was on the committee, and I brought up the uh, example of the four guidelines of being truthful, helpful, helpful, uh, coming from a good heart, kind, and we might say, and having good timing, and they loved them. And, when, and the committee, when it adopted its uh, conclusions that were presented to the faculty, it advised that we would start every meeting remembering these four guidelines, and we did that. And they asked me to uh, talk about, at the beginning of every meeting, we would have monthly faculty meetings, which lasted about um, five or six hours. Plenty of opportunity for unskillful speech. <laughs> and, <laughs> and and uh, they asked me to give these guidelines. We had them written on a poster board at the front of the room. Mm. And some of the people who were, in part, had, uh, by their actions, we might say, had catalyzed the formation of the committee. <laughs> uh, meaning that they were perceived as unskillful. Um, they would often look I mean, they'd often stare at those four guidelines and say i 'm not sure that what i 'm going to say meets these guidelines <laughs> but and then go on, but it actually had an effect right? and so one can actually bring these guidelines so again this is where we can have an expansive sense of what ethical practice means. it can mean bringing this into one 's relationships one 's work, uh, setting one 's community and you know, think of what it would be like to have skillful speech in these settings, right? Again, not an easy job One has to be quite skillful in one speaking even to set up skillful speech, right? Um, That's a whole other matter. Um, So that's part of the potential. We can have this more outer way of working with the the guideline, the more inner way, and the more social way. Um, The second guideline is helpfulness which is, you know, in the text it's, it's often said to not be malicious or harmful in one's uh, speech. And so we can ask, is this, is this speech helpful? And again, we want to use all the criteria. And we can really bring these to bear. We can, you know, like I said, we can have the guidelines present at a meeting and ask, am I following the guidelines when I speak? Uh, I, I, would, I would often... Uh, I think I still do. I have the guidelines by my telephone. And I would often look at the guidelines and repeat them in my mind before I answered a telephone call. It's particularly challenging with uh, telemarketers. (laughs) (coughs) Okay, sorry to trigger people. I mean, okay, just just breathe. (laughs) Uh, But there's, um, yeah, that's advanced practice, right? (laughs) That's advanced practice, but... uh, one can, one can take that aspiration and really try, you know, I lived next door to a telemarketer once. It was a hard job. It was a hard job that, that he had. And, and he would tell me about what it was like. And, you know, how would you like to have a job where half the people you call irately hang up on you with consternation? It's not easy, right? So next time you get telemarketer call, and I, I'm saying this to myself as well. <laughs> Can really uh, just remember the guidelines and have a special loving kindness while being firm on your own needs <laughs> okay so An example
1: uh, being <laughs> yeah. example being that hello it's
2: mr uh, rothberg there
0: hello um <laughs> yes this is he
2: uh we would like to talk to you about acne no, nice. blah 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 <laughs> nice. do you have a couple of minutes
0: I think I, you know, I'm in the middle of something. I would have a minute, but more than that, I don't have right now. But, but I, I know um, I know what you're doing is very important to you. <laughs> <That is nice. laughs> okay, right. So we could, the main thing is the intention, right? This is where so much of the speech practice is connected with intention. If you have, you know, it's, so it's actually, this is a key aspect of speech practice that we found very much, because we taught, like in the retreat, we taught nonviolent communication, which has certain formula for how to speak, but the key actually isn't the words one utters, but it's what's behind the words. That's a really key aspect of things. It's like, what's the intention there? What's the energy there? One can have, there are people who practice nonviolent communication as a stra- as a manipulative strategy. Right? That can be done. One can use very this highly evolved speech techniques, but it's not coming from a good place. So the key for speech is really intention and coming from that uh, kind heart. Very, 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 very crucial. So being, being helpful, um, very crucial part of it. Yeah, role plays are great, right? <coughs> role plays, you know, maybe we'll all do role plays with telemarketing calls <laughs> today or, or next time and see what you do, okay? How many would like those? No. <laughs> 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 okay. Okay. <laughs> Mixed uh, hands did not go up quickly. Okay. So, so again, it's partly the, partly the. Um, we work with the outer guideline with being helpful, and we also look what's going on internally when I'm not helpful. You know, in the case of the tele- telemarketing example, I might be impatient or irritated. We just want to see what's there. This is again where. Speech practice intimately connected with mindfulness practice, intimately connected with coming from a caring and empathic heart. Right? Again, not simply the external guideline. But you see how it starts to get integrated with these other aspects of practice. The third aspect of the third guideline is about coming from a kind heart. Coming from kindness. Again, as I mentioned, this isn't about being overly nice, but it's can I be uh, can I come from a kind, or can I come from empathy, even when I disagree with someone? This is difficult, right? Can I come from a kind, empathic heart, where I actually, in, when, even when I disagree with someone, that I can tune into what matters for them? This is not easy, <laughs> right? But this would be part of the practice. Can I come from kindness? Kindness can, n- can mean that I know both what's important for me, but I have the capacity also to tune in to what's important for the other, not simply shut down to the other when something challenging comes up. This is not easy, right? This, this is where we take, it takes practice. And the, we want to particularly see what do I do when I'm triggered or when there are difficulties? How do I, how do I come back to these ethical guidelines when there's some challenge, some difficulty, some triggering, some reactivity. So here, as with uh, our practice generally, we're really invited to really be experts on our own reactive patterns. This is a key part of the practice. So meditation isn't just about coming into peace and calm. Sorry. Anyone? Okay, I thought it was peace and calm, so... Now, a lot of it, you know, again, I probably don't need to say this, but this just is more reason for the continued investigation of our reactive patterns, which is a huge part of our practice and goes a long way with our, with our speech practice. The last guideline is expressed in different ways. It's really about appropriateness of the speech. Sometimes it's talked about in terms of timing, really having a sense that the timing is good. really crucial aspect to ask about particularly challenging speech. Is there good timing? What's, you know, is this the right time to speak? Sometimes we have, we're very impulsive or compulsive about needing to talk about something now. It might not be the right time. So how do I talk in a timely, yet uh, uh, timely way, but still uh, at the right time? Simply, to, again, to ask that question is most of the work. If we can do that, that that helps. And other aspects that are brought out in this last criteria include, sometimes in the text you'll see that it's, a, it's about looking out for distracted thought. Looking when they're, in the text sometimes the translation is gossip, which I think is particularly meant to mean thought which is distracted and very much <coughs> could be at the mercy of... Um, being negative or uh, you know, talking with another person about some third person in a negative way. That's why I think it's particularly that question of distracted thought is like where is it coming from, you know? And there's a questioning of how much of our uh, talking is just uh, what in the West we call blabbering. I don't know if, if that's a translation, but but we w- we we want to we want to look at that. We want to look at uh, what's going on with this precious human energy, the precious energy of speech. Again, it's not to be overly tight, but it's, it's partly to look again, what's the motivation, what's the intention. So again, how to practice these. I've mentioned them uh, along the way. The outer practice, we, we can take these guidelines, uh, work with them in the morning. Say, let me take these guidelines. We can take all four of them at once, we could take just one or two of them and work with them. I, I once worked with a group for six months on these guidelines and we took each one for a month or two. You know, so you can work in that way. You can say, okay, I'll take one or two of them for the next week. If I, if I could recommend two to take, I would recommend being truthful and, and trying to come from a kind heart. Or maybe you feel drawn to work with all four but to work with them, set intentions in the morning, set intentions before interactions, that you'll bring this in. When this becomes alive, like when we did have this group, it was very alive for me uh, and for everyone in the group for these six months. It really led to a lot of deepening of speech practice. So working with intention in the morning, maybe at the end of a meditation, before some event, uh, something like that, Um, you know, so you can reflect uh, where, Am I, you can maybe reflect right now, where am I, uh, where am I already pretty good with the speech guidelines? You maybe you can just ask yourself right now, where am I pretty good with the guidelines already in terms of being truthful, helpful, kind and having good timing? And where do I find challenges with these guidelines? Again, just just to yourself, where do I find challenges? Where do I sometimes find myself, in retrospect, not following the uh, guidelines? we can practice with those reflections, we can practice by setting intentions, we can work with that quality of pausing. You know, I had a uh, a group of people from the retreat that I met with two days ago, uh, and when we had we an had evening session, at the end of the session, I went around the group and asked people just to say one word, which was their practice, which they wanted to follow until we met again about two weeks later. And there were a lot of, you know, there were, close to 15 people there, and people met, and the one, the wor- the uh, intention which was most repeated was the quality of pausing. It was interesting, you know, like about a third of the people, their one word was to pause, was to pause more, just to stop the momentum of the speaking in the mind, and so that might be an intention you want to work with for the next week, just to bring, it could be. Concretely, you could bring a pause into your speaking three times a day. Once in the morning, once in the afternoon, once in the evening, maybe. And and see what the effect is there, because the pause brings mindfulness. What's going on? So again, can work with the guidelines, write them down, remember them. The daily quality is what's important. Again, you may want to work just with, let me just be truthful and try to come from the heart. Or maybe you just want to say, let me try to come from a kind heart as best I can in my speech. And remember that, you know, several times a day. So let me end with uh, uh, one statement of these guidelines in which the Buddha expresses it in terms of five qualities. But you'll hear, I think, the quality of goodwill uh, repeated. A statement endowed with five factors is well-spoken, not ill-spoken. It is blameless and unfaulted by knowledgeable people. Which five? It is spoken at the right time. It is spoken in truth. It is spoken affectionately. It is spoken beneficially. It is spoken with a mind of goodwill. Those are the guidelines. And that that quote's on the handout. And then from uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, the uh, great Vietnamese teacher. Coming into his 90th year, aware of the suffering caused by unmindful speech and the inability to listen to others, I vow to cultivate loving speech and deep listening in order to bring joy and happiness to others and relieve others of their suffering. Knowing that words can cause happiness or suffering, I vow to learn to speak truthfully with words that inspire self-confidence, joy, and hope. Let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for your kind attention. We just practiced a pause, and uh, like to welcome any reflections, or or uh, questions, observations. And we'll use we'll use the mic, please. And let's say our names also.
2: Hi, I'm Jolie. Um, I was just at a um, at a school in the mountains and. the person who, it's like a field campus for a university, and um, the person who runs it appears to have an alcohol problem. Mm. And so there's, this guy's sort of the authority, and everyone else is sort of kind of dodging around what do we do about this situation, and he's not taking care of the situation, he's not taking care of business. And there's all these other teachers, and, and it was just such an odd situation of like, well, how do you be honest? Like this place is totally being run down. It's filthy. The students are mm-hmm. complaining. You're not up until 11:30, mm-hmm. and how do you do it in a way that's kind but tr- truthful? And nobody would do any. Nobody would say anything because it was yeah. just. I don't know. I, I'm still like, what? What is the appropriate response as a teacher there?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, describing a very challenging situation. So maybe two things. One of them, this is. Uh, this is uh, what we would call a high level of difficulty situation. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So it's, it's always helpful to know, this is something I've become more and more conscious of, uh, to kind of see if we can, on a scale of 0 to 10, say what level it is. Mm-hmm. That can be very helpful information in terms of knowing what kind of resources to bring to the situation. And the reality is that we actually do a lot of our training at the lower levels, or in the middle levels especially, like with difficulties. We might really practice, practice with your middle level difficulties, where, you know, it's not so much at stake, you don't know how to make the first move, you know how to make the first move and so forth. That's an important point, that we train here with the ordinary situations, like bringing kindness into a situation, one can train with just one's everyday interactions with that. You know, and one can then uh, say, okay, I will, I vow, and I think I'm going to take this vow my personally, I vow to train with telemarketers mm-hmm. for the next week. <laughs> Don't do it indefinitely. Just do it for a week at a time. Because otherwise it's a little unreal. But that you can really, so. Um, so that's the first thing. And then the second, you know, then how, how to deal with the actual situation. Um... Yeah, some, sometimes what's helpful in those situations might be to like have a convening of a group of elders or people who are senior in the community who know that there's a problem and just convene. Uh, because something, acting uh, publicly as the first step may not be the most skillful way to act. But to try to find, I don't know if you're connected with the group. But, yeah, I'm a teacher there, Yeah. Yeah, you're a teacher there, so I think some way of, uh, uh, you know, maybe convening a group that's, um, you know, that's, con- you know, concerned elders and then to brainstorm what to do. And there are, um, you know, and there, there are practices that, you know, can sometimes uh, deal very skillfully with, with conflict in a, in a community where things aren't going well. Uh, but it's... Um, uh, probably there could be helpful to have some outside, might be helpful to have some outside facilitators who are skillful. Might be. Yeah. But I think some some way of getting concerned people together to talk about both what the issues are and, and strategies. And may, maybe, maybe consulting with some, some external people.
2: Right. But in the meantime, someone had to say the bathrooms are filthy and the students are complaining.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so... So to, I think to have, it sounds like you need a strategy on on quite a few different levels, right? Right. Yeah. And so, but I think having some body, so it's not just so you have some some group that's starting to take responsibility. Okay. That's where my mind goes right now. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Other observations, questions, level ten difficulties. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I did take that uh, course last year um, on uh, mindful right. communication. Yeah, yeah Margaret, yeah. and um, yeah, it's, it's about a year, and um, it's probably one of the most challenging things to be mindful. But I found that just in an example yesterday uh, in a work situation where I was wrong. I uh, misunderstood the time I was supposed to be at the work site. (laughs) Ha-ha! And um, the judge I worked with was very abrupt, and um, we had had an incident before this, so it's not a good start to... um, She's a new judge, (laughs) and I'm not taking it lightly, but I'm just saying that it caused me to... uh, in a situation where I had to be in the work environment working with her and being aware <laughs> that she was going to report me to the higher authority
0: mm.
1: and because um, she had a note and I thought oh my gosh I'm an independent contractor so uh, it was it's pretty important to keep on a good relationship yeah. <laughs> with your yeah. direct employer there. At any rate, what happened was that during this time uh, where I was taking notes and recording the hearing, I had a chance to pause and to think. And what was I going to say? And what occurred to me, what came back to me from the retreat, was uh, the one thing that I find is the most helpful in the difficult communication, and that is to be empathetic and to look at what she was thinking Mm -hmm. rather than being fearful about my situation and how I was going to defend myself, I thought, wow, you know, look at how she's looking at me. So what that led to was uh, an opportunity that she allowed. It was almost as if she understood that I did want to speak to her, and she allowed that brief time where I could say to her, oh, my goodness, you must have a terrible impression of me. And what happened was it was a heartfelt, on my part, re- realization that I wanted her to be uh, confident that um, what she had perceived, mm. and the, the uh, situation, wouldn't happen again. Mm-hmm. And that just led to, she just said, okay, well, it, it, we'll just have that pattern, we'll be removed, and we'll just go forward.
0: Yeah, so it just
1: worked out, you know? And it really came from not so much my uh, fancy words that I could say, but basically from that, that intention. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So <coughs> again, this is, this is challenging. Thanks, Margaret. But that, that capacity to reconnect with one's heart, one's intention for empathy when things are challenging It's not easy. And it, it, it can, be- again, it can benefit from training where we train in taking, as it were, the other person's point of view where things are not difficult, which, which we do naturally. It's, it's kind of wired into the way the brain works, the limbic system, is that we're naturally empathic, compassionate, and so forth. But but, uh, but we can actively train in this to, to uh, and then to... Be, to to more naturally go to what matters for the other person and what the other person might be feeling and this can be a training and then it might be more available in a difficult situation and it can it, again it's uh, in difficult situations typically what happens is there's some polarization where we each in our you know each in our halves of the world so to speak and there you know there's kind of walls are up there may be blaming and judging going on and there's a breakdown of empathy, a breakdown of connection. Uh, and how do you come back to that? Sometimes it can be done unilaterally, a little bit like you did it, where we just, ha- we just sort of, and again, we have to be skillful and be aware of the other person. And there are people who will take an opening and bam you. you know? So we have to be, we have to be skillful. Uh, but, but often that, you know, where there's general goodwill, that can, that can be a breakthrough. So that's, that's another area of practice. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, okay, the last one, and then we'll, uh, we'll finish.
1: One thing that helps me, I can't always do it, but one thing that helps me is the idea of non-attachment to outcome. You yeah. know, there's my intention, there's, you know, give it a good shot, and then Sometimes it does. The other person doesn't respond yeah. empathetically, or you know, it like it doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. And how do I pick myself up, or how do what do I say to myself after that happens, and how do I va- evaluate the yeah. situation afterwards? But I think the first step for me is to remind myself that I, I'm not in control of the ultimate product here. You know, uh, and. To go in with
0: that attitude also. Right, great. Thank you, thank you Adrienne. So mm-hmm. we really see the way in which uh, the speech practice is part of this larger practice. We can see how we bring in mindfulness, we bring in the cultivation of the heart here. Adrian's example, we bring in um, the wisdom factor, which is to, uh, to look particularly, again with mindfulness, am I grabbing on to the outcome, which we all will tend to do, you know, at this meeting. in this interaction, is there a way that I can have this balance, which we've looked at a lot over these years, because it's been something very important to me, this balance where I really uh, work with my intention, work with my intended objective, my intended outcome, and I'm, you know, keep active with that, but then, in a sense, I I let go of attachment to it. You know, so I, in, in that sense, I work for this outcome to occur, but I let it be what it is, given the factors, right? I don't... And that's, that's a challenging balance. You know, I've talked about that sometimes as what you can find right at the heart of the greatest activists, people like Gandhi or King. They would, they would act in ways in which they kept on acting, but they, in a sense, let go of the results once, once they acted. And then they, ke- but they keep on with the intention. Is that, is that making some sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so the key is non-attachment to outcome, and that's part of all this. If we're attached to outcome, it will be very hard to speak skillfully in certain up- in certain situations, right? So all these aspects of our practice are interrelated. So my invitation for next week: how many of you would like to take on skillful speech in the next week? Okay, great. Okay. okay. I, I, I didn't track too carefully who didn't raise the hand. <laughs> I'll, I'll be careful about speaking with you. <laughs> or reserve your options. Okay. Um, to, um, so the, uh, the invitation would be to right now just to reflect on uh, your intentions <coughs> for the next week and if you want to practice in a certain way, it might be with the four guidelines, it might be with one or two of them, it might be with pausing, maybe something else. What's your intention for the next week, and how am I going to make this tension alive? It might be to remember it every morning in your practice. It could be to kind of write it down or remember it uh, once or twice or three times during the day. So what's your intention and how are you going to implement it? So we close by recognizing these good intentions and asking that the benefits of our time together be offered out into the world for the benefit of all. And also recognizing that the, we invite those benefits to be there for us and for all those in our lives. Really offering the benefits to all beings, knowing that we are part of all beings. Thank you for your kind attention and for your
1: practice. Um, enjoy the explorations next week. Thank you. Thank you.